You're listening to the International Literature Festival Dublin podcast. International Literature Festival Dublin is a Dublin City Council initiative kindly supported by the Arts Council. For all the latest festival news or to sign up to our newsletter, visit www.ilfdublin.com. Thank you very much, Martin. Hello, everybody. Welcome along to Smock Alley Theatre here on the Sunday. Uh, we've got two fine, fine writers for you to meet, and we're going to start by actually hearing what they have to say and what they have to say in their books. First of all, I'm going to ask Tracy to uh, read something from Neural Planet for us. Well, hello. Um, so I'm going to read a couple of passages just um, to give a kind of vibe of the writing for anyone who hasn't read the book yet. Um, this is a passage from the start. I make a lot of use in the book of my teenage diaries. Going right back to the start... I try to picture myself on the day I first decided to keep a diary, 29th of December 1975, when I was 13 years old. I must have been given it as a Christmas present, and although it was for the year 1976, its first few pages invited entries for the end of the previous year. So I began as the old year ended, just before it turned to face the new. I would have settled down with a pen, riffled through the year's worth of blank, empty pages before breaking it open at the very start and then, 29th December 1975, went to St Albans with Debbie, got a belt, could not get a jumper or skirt. That's it. That's all she wrote. No starting with a bang, no announcing herself to the world or to a future reader, no declaration of intent. Instead, I draw a circle and leave it empty, my eye caught by an absence. And it wasn't an aberration. I carried on in that style for years, making countless entries about not buying things, not going to the disco, not going to school, a piano lesson being cancelled, the school coach not arriving. It's a life described by what's missing and what fails to happen. My second ever entry is just as banal, 30th of December. Went to Welling with Liz, didn't get anything except a bag of Kentucky chips. 1st of January, 1977. Went to Welling with Mum and Dad to get some boots, but couldn't get any. 8th of January. Liz and I went to Potter's Bar in the afternoon to try to get her ears pierced, but she couldn't. 19th of January, 1979. Deb and I went to St Albans, tried to get some black trousers, but couldn't find any nice ones. (laughs) 17th of March. Tried to go to the library, but it was shut. (laughs) Was it me or was it my surroundings? Was it just that I was the dullest child in existence? Noticing nothing, experiencing nothing, thinking nothing. Or was it at least in part an embodiment of something in the air? something vague and undefined. Even when I write about it now, I realise that the time and place in which I grew up, 1970s suburbia, is easier to define by saying what it wasn't than what it was. Britman's Park was a village, but not a village. Rural, but not rural. A stop on the line. A space in between two landscapes that are both more highly rated, the city and the countryside a contingent, liminal, border territory, in between land. I'm just going to read a short passage from towards the end. So the story of the book is about my teens growing up in this (laughs) suburban wasteland, Um, and much of it revolves around me falling out with my parents. Um, 
<clears throat> and this is from towards the end of the book, which sort of sums up where my relationship with my parents ended up. The distance that had grown up between me and my parents in my teens never quite closed up, and it was due in part to my increased education and change of lifestyle. Like so many similar parents, they'd wanted me to do well at school and then go to university to take those chances they'd never had. And then when I did, it turned me into someone they thought they couldn't understand. We never know our parents as we are growing up, only getting to understand them once we are ourselves standing in their old discarded shoes, and perhaps it can't be any other way. But if we don't know our parents, I do also wonder whether they ever know us. In later years, after my break to have children, when I went back to music and recorded an album called Out of the Woods in 2007, I sent them a copy, expecting a phone call or something a day or two later, hoping for parental praise, as you always do, as you still do, even when you're a grown-up and a success and a mother. It never came. They never mentioned it or said anything about the record. My sister Debbie told me later they found it hard to understand, and I was never sure what exactly was hard to understand. The music? Or the reason for making a record? The need? Perhaps that. Later still, when I wrote Bedsit Disco Queen, my dad's only comment to Debbie was, I never knew Tracy was so into music. which still makes me laugh till I cry, for all it says about how much we can remain a complete and utter mystery to those who should know us the best. And then again, in even later years, he would say to Debbie, in reference to something or other I had done, some inexplicable action, some bizarre life choice, and this, remember, when I was a middle-aged, middle-class woman, married to the man I'd been with for over 30 years, with three children, he would say, oh, Tracy, she's from another planet. <laughs> Thank you very much, Tracy. Sinead, do you want to follow that? that I was going to read something else. I was going to read something teenage, but I think I might read a different bit because it's kind of about uh, parents, but except I'm the parent in it, and it's definitely about music. Um, so I think I'll read that bit, if I can just figure out where it is. Um, oh, yeah, it's here. Music is the reason my children used to be obsessed with death, but only death in the abstract sense, when it was something that happened to famous people, not those we love, until Terry or my best friend's young husband it transpired that their interest in the subject was not about the ending of a life, but of someone not being here anymore. They began to ask constant questions about people from history, from music, from the films we watched together. They found it reassuring if someone they'd just discovered was still somewhere in the world, inhaling and exhaling, traveling, working, writing songs. Is Elvis dead? Is Willy Wonka dead? Is Michael Jackson dead? Is Mary Robinson dead? Is Stevie Wonder dead? Is Bill Clinton dead? Is the guy who wrote Video Kill the Radio Star dead? Is David Bowie dead? Until January 2016, I was able to say with breezy relief that Bowie, in all his heterochromic glory, was still with us. They were very sad when he was not. 
Conversations about religion are complicated. My husband and I are not religious, our children are not baptised and are fine with this, but religion is part of the school curriculum. We answer their questions, teach them to be respectful of believers and do not sway their opinion. One day they may believe and we will support that. Not long ago, after my son had started school, he declared out of nowhere and with Nietzschean fervour, I think God is an Egypt. <laughs> and they ask about heaven. I have no knowledge of a place I don't believe in. Instead, I talk about the night sky, swapping theology for astronomy. I present them with stars in place of stations of the cross. On my phone, there's a star app which we point at the sky in search of planets and celestial bodies. The city lights frequently obscure the view, but the stars always show up on this screen, technology undeterred by cloud cover. We tilt and roll the app, looking for the Big Dipper, the Seven Sisters, the flattened W of Cassiopeia, with the little I know, I talk of supernovas and quasars. In Italy, on a mountaintop, the four of us watch a blood moon rise, with Mars hovering close by. And I realise they'll grow out of this soon, of thinking their parents have all the answers. They will realise the size of the globe, begin to dream of all the places they'll want to see. The stars will be here long after us, I tell them, wherever we may go. But I cannot speak for heaven. Beautiful. Thank you very much. Thank you both very much for those readings, which really set the tone very nicely for what we're going to talk about. I suppose like, one of the things we're trying to ex explore researching this was just the commonalities between the two of you. And like a good place to begin is probably suburbia and teenage years, because, I mean, like Michonne, you talk quite a lot in the book about spending most of your time, in, in, a lot of your teenage years, in bed, in a hospital bed, in like me being, being sick. And Tracy, like, I, I want to kind of start with you, because uh, as you're reading the excerpts in your diary there, you just suddenly remember the, the complete innuai boredom. It sounded, like, it sounded like Beckett. It, it did, it did. But, but like, I'm, just, I'm, I'm glad to see that you managed to find a pair of black trousers, finally. <laughs> you know, but can, can, can you kind of talk to us a little bit about like, what it was like to go back to those teenage diaries? Where were they? Did you keep them all, all along? And what was it like to discover, oh my God, me and Debbie, we lived lives of great, great <laughs> dreariness? Well, ironically, I'd looked through the diaries once before when I wrote Beds at Disco Queen, but I went through them quite selectively then because I was writing a memoir that was very much about you know, be trying to become a pop star. Um, so I was just pruning all the references to buying records, going to gigs. Um, so I presented a version of my teenage years that just looked quite cool and looked also quite directional. Here you are, here's this person, she's clearly going to end up being in a band. And then for this book, which was much more about a sense of place, I went back and read them again. Um, and those entries about not doing things just leapt out at me. And I thought, this is a gift, really. This is a really good starting point. It is very Bichetti, and it's very, you know, sort of about nothingness and absence and repetition, which are all really interesting things to write about. Yeah. Um, so I started picking them all out, and I sort of made a list. I mean, there are more. <laughs> that sounded like an awful lot of entries, but I was absolutely horrified. Um, but... <laughs> You know, it, it just, it was a good literary starting point, if you like, because it also then gets you started on the notion of, you know, what writing about your life is like. If you're going to write a diary and you've got a day's entry and you've had 24 hours, why do you choose the one thing to know is the thing that was unsuccessful or didn't happen? You know, it's, yeah. there's something interesting about 
writing. Yeah. And I think not part, a big part of nonfiction or essays is the fact that it's about omission. It's about the things you leave out as much yeah. as the things you put in. You can't often cram everything because a lot of it's not that interesting yeah. or, or doesn't fit into what you're trying to say thematically. Um, and I think that one of the reasons it, 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 books like these are, are work, if they do work, is because not everything is in them. You have, there's, there are things you have to leave out for various reasons, mm. um, often just because they don't work. Also, in your case, you made constellations. You said this. I can't remember what you said to Patrick Fraley in that Irish Times interview or somewhere else. And you were saying that when you sent the first first draft to Siobhan Mannion, mm. then got to get her kind of her kind of view on it, she said there wasn't enough of you in it. Yeah. You know, did you find it hard to put yourself in it, having spent so many years being a journalist and critic, where we're taught not to use the word I at all? Yeah, absolutely. You're not meant to be part of the story. So then, writing a book like this is really unhelpful when you're trying to do that. Um, and the first person, obviously, that, that first essay that was, it was published by Granta, it was it contains a lot of stuff about going on a pilgrimage to Lourdes, those years, 13 to 17, loads of surgery, plaster carts, casts, terrible doctors, a lot of being bedbound, a lot of reading. I mean, formative in terms of becoming a reader and definitely in terms of a writer, I think. But also years that I realised the impact that the church had on my life, on women's lives, continued to do for a really long time. And I didn't make those connections because we'd all, we all believed everything that we were told then. And it's only when things started to happen years later that we started to question and look at how the church has not been a very good place uh, in terms of its treatment of women on multiple levels. Um, and so I did need that distance. But I, I, So when I did start to write, it was probably the first essay I did write, um, I was afraid of putting myself into it. And I just thought maybe it's indulgent, maybe it's not interesting. So I, it's, it was very uh, totemic. It was very, the church is bad. It was very polemical almost. It was a lot of very, a lot of information in it and a lot of history and a lot of politics, which is still in that. But Siobhan said to me, we all know that story. We don't know this story over here, the one which is literally you skirting behind the pillars, trying not to tell the story. She said, write that story. Yeah. And, she was, and I was very reluctant, but I, I think she was right. Did you find as well, Tracy? I mean, like you know, you're someone who spent your life as a, a pop star, singer songwriter, um, with everything with the girl. You, like I mean, I, I was saying to you backstage that first time I met you, last time I met you was 20 years ago on one of those many promotional circuits yeah. you would have been on. Did you find when it came to write your book that you were thinking like, okay, I've left a lot of things out. I mean, are, do you think kind of pop stars are good at hiding things? Like I mean, keeping keeping interesting things aside for a future date. Well, for me, the interesting thing about suddenly being in the position of being able to tell my story was that um, it felt very empowering. Um, I've been written about an awful lot. And, um, you know, I think, for me, there's been that sense of actually reclaiming my own story and reclaiming my, my own sort of description of myself. I had reached a point where I got very typecast, I think, by the kind of stuff that had piled up over the years. The way in which people had responded to our songs was often quite narrow and limiting in making a very direct connection between, for instance, a melancholy song, therefore you're a miserable person. Um, I remember when I first appeared on Twitter and people would just go, oh my God, she made a joke. And I'm like, oh, fuck, okay. <laughs> we have a lot of undoing to do here. Um, so, you know, I found... As well as you, I do agree there is also that inclination to, to worry constantly that mm. you're talking about yourself too much. Yeah. Um, I think as women especially, you For know, sure. we are taught not to show off, not to take up too much space, not to draw attention. So yeah. those little nagging voices saying, stop talking about yourself, have to be silenced. But I've, I've always thought, even with songs, that the more detail you go into and the more specific you make your story, the more people relate to it. The more you actually end up telling a story that other people connect with. So the moment when you think, oh, I'm being too personal or I'm being too specific, this will only mean something to me, you're wrong, actually. It's those moments that people say, 
that really spoke to me. It's either exactly how they felt or it's kind of not, but they felt so drawn into it that yeah. they can connect. Same question, kind of, where a twist yeah. you, Sinead. I mean, as someone who spends your life championing other writers, you know, suddenly you're the person being championed in the limelight. When you read those reviews, and I know you read the reviews, I know you read every single thing that's written about you. <laughs> you know, you do. Oh, you do, you do. Do you recognise that person? What do, you, what do you think of the Sinead Gleeson in inverted commas we read about when we're reading about reviews of Constellations? It's really bizarre. Uh, it, it's, like, it's really strange, and it's also really interesting to me to see what people pick up on about the book. Some people are... are a lot of the reviews have been really perceptive about noti- noticing things and making connections. Um, and then the, some of the parts that I worried about, there's some very experimental elements to this book. There are essays that look like poetry. There's a, a, one that was on a long list for an experimental nonfiction prize, which is the McGill, it's 20 stories about the McGill Pain Index. There's a weird little story about the psychogeography and geography and layout of hospitals called Panopticon. And they're the things that you worry about going... Because, like, again, I, I wasn't interested, and I think maybe Tracy feels the same, in writing a linear, straightforward book that was going to be called a memoir, because this isn't a memoir, because I'm not interested in writing a book that's all about myself. I wanted to talk about art and politics and religion and other writers and painters and blood and blood artists and all the things I talk about in this book. And the, So the, the form and shape of this book is the way it is because of I want this is how I wanted to tell things. Um, and I think that some of the responses... Uh, I, I've been really heartened by people who've got the weird stuff and knock on, what is that doing in there? Um, which is the stuff that you think, because the book is not, it's, it's not it's, it, it doesn't look like chapters. They're all different lengths, they're different sizes and shapes. And I wanted it to be a kind of miscellany and a bit more of a, a grab bag. And also that was the only way I knew to tell those particular stories. Sometimes form is part of the content. You know, I think we're living yeah. in a really good yeah. time, though, for non-fiction yeah. writing, sure. which is allowing people to write books that you know, are not stereotypical memoirs you know often it's people you know like you and me to a certain extent using your own story as kind of jumping off points as well to enable you to talk about all sorts of other things for sure and i think that's really exciting it feels like people's appetite for non-fiction writing is is there um and you know people are very open and receptive to you using the form in all sorts of different ways, you know, either to tell a very personal story or to, you know, go off on all sorts of different tangents. I, th- I, think, I think that's it's, quite free. I, I think the essay particularly is a really malleable form. You can do yeah. an awful lot with it. And there's rules about novels in terms of the length, you know, which, again, we're also starting to upend a bit more with what the novel can do. There's, there has been a long time short stories, you know, start, middle, end, it must be 3,000 words. Again, lots of people are messing around with that and inverting yeah. that. Um, and even with poetry as well. I mean, poetry's had quite a renaissance in terms of a lot of people. And when I can't write or I can't read or I'm too busy, that is the thing I'll tend to, to go to. But I, th- I think we're, we're more interested, we're, we're more open, I think, to more hybrid stuff and stuff that isn't mm. one thing. And for a long time, I think, in writing, everyone's obsessed with categories and where it would go in the yeah. bookshop, yeah. you know? Yeah. And thankfully, that's going away. Yeah. I just want to kind of pull up and uh, talk to you about one thing you've kind of mentioned, both of you mentioned there, actually. What you, you were kind of saying, that what th- people pick up on. And one thing that I picked up on was... I suppose the best way of using is hospital terminology and how you're treating hospitals. You know, and I've I, I recently seeing a load of kind of things that the hospitals have been giving patients to fill out forms to fill out, and it's just full of the most great waffle and great gobbledygook ever. You you spoke at a, a actually I think it was here a medical doctor. Uh, MD. Yeah, yeah, you, you yeah, spoke like. Could you come talk to us like how what was their reaction to the book and the fact that they didn't come out of it very well? A lot of them, <laughs> the, the, the profession as such didn't come out of it very well. Individuals may have, but just in how they, in terms of how they communicate with the patient yeah. and that use of language. Well, some of them do. Uh, those 13 to 17 years and then onwards when I eventually got my hip replaced, um, uh, it was dealing with orthopaedics. And orthopaedics is, you know, it's, it's the carpentry of medicine. It's very uh, physical and for a long time it was very male-dominated. So I never saw a female orthopaedic surgeon until uh, very recent years. Um, and I, I talk about in the book about 
literally t telling your story, try, which is often difficult when you're 13 to articulate where you hurt and why it hurt and how much it hurts and why this pain is important. Um, so I've had a lot of incidences of telling somebody that I'm really in a bad way and then someone not believing you or diminishing it or not thinking it's true. There's, I talk about a, a, a scene where of having a, wearing this plaster from my rib cage down for, uh, you know, for 10, 11 weeks. And when it came to be taken off, a, a guy went at it with a cast saw and I, my mother was there with me. There was a lot of screaming and he sent her away. He was very annoyed and shouting at me. And I said, oh, you really are. This is absolutely horrific. So they took me down to the theatre the next day and took it off. And I, I still have six scars on my leg from that saw. I knew it was killing me. But to be told that all the time um, is a kind of diminishment. And I, so what I started to do over the years was... The way doctors interact with you, and at, so at that festival, uh, which is a really fascinating festival, it's on uh, in Galway this year for two days because it's gotten more popular, which the whole audience is medical practitioners, clinicians, um, people, nurse managers, doctors, surgeons, but then the people who take part are also medical people. So there was a, a man on before me who uh, was, a, I think, an emergency doctor in New York, but also wrote short stories, and these, these beautiful short stories. And so I, he read his story, and I came out onto the stage and said, God, I'm not used to doctors being that articulate. Um, and the whole audience went, yeah, oi, and didn't like it at all. But I had loads of conversations, and they were telling me, look, things are happening. There's medical humanities. There are conversations about where you don't walk. You use your first name. You don't say, I'm doctor. You introduce yourself. You don't pull back the blanket and start poking at somebody. So things, it is learning. It, it is changing all, all the time. But I do think, particularly in Ireland, there's been a link between the, the church and medicine and the state, this kind of like triumvirate of very patriarchal stuff, you know, from symphysiotomies to lack of contraception to lack of abortion. And, it's, and it, again, it's a lot of control of women's bodies that's been pretty disgraceful. But it even comes down to space. And something, mm. you, you, again, you mentioned in the book, you said about like, the fact that wards and hospitals are named after saints. Yeah, and if you, I mean, if you go into any hospital, they all have saints' names, hospitals. So do the wards. There are statues everywhere. I remember in the height of like, leukaemia, this, a, a nun, a really lovely lady, would come, come around, and the only pastoral care you got about how is your brain feeling when your body is an utter mess was this nun come around going, do you want a facial? And she'd proceed to like, throw a load of lavender on you and like, slap you around. And that was the facial, and that was the only kind of care. When you wanted someone to go... Do you get an Instagram picture to, of There's <laughs> no Instagram then. But I was, you just want someone to go, how are you emotionally feeling? Which you aren't asked a lot of medicine. And I do want to counteract that by saying, I know doctors are very busy, overworked, stressed, up against it all the time, but it doesn't take a moment to be personal and be empathetic and to look someone in the eye and because it, it is most vulnerable I mean you, you know you've had children I've had children also those scenes Joe Duffy on Liveline did a whole horrifying week on, on bad childbirth stories where a patient is a very vulnerable individual but they're still a person and often when you feel like you're most frightened especially if you're not used to hospitals and I am quite used to them there's nowhere more frightening to be so if someone's dismissing you or not talking to you or not even offering you a kind word even when you're busy 10 seconds to be nice and say hello, you know. And I, I, so I give out about that all the time. So I think doctors are terrified of me. So. <laughs> one thing that comes out of both books is one around family, you know. I want to talk to you, Tracy, about like, I mean, your, your parents, you know, because we, we, at the start of the book, you're talking about going back to the kind of suburbia where you grew up. You'd like, I mean, they've, they've moved on or they're trying to move on, you know. Like, when, when you, obviously, you, 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 in the passage you read as well, you talked about, like, we don't, we don't understand our parents, you know. Is that something that, like, as you were kind of going through your teenage diaries, did you realize that you kind of, had you paid your parents this service? Had you been tough on your parents? Yeah, I was very tough on them. I mean, the diary entries about my parents are quite brutal, um, <clears throat> especially my mum. A lot of my um, trouble with my parents was sort of focused on my relationship with my mum. And I, I, I thought I was just completely rejecting the life they'd chosen and the life they were trying to choose for me. Yeah. And maybe, it maybe seemed inevitable that that had to be done. Maybe just explain to the audience, because you talk about the book, I mean, these were, it was like suburban academics. 
Yes, I mean, so I, I grew up in suburbs of London, but my parents had both grown up in London and had left after the war. They were the generation who'd been teenagers, lived through the Blitz in London, and then wanted to move out. You know, now, obviously, I can look at them and see entirely why they made that choice. And it was a kind of aspirational move for them as well. They both came from working-class families, hadn't been educated beyond the age of 14. Um, and, you know, it was a kind of move up the social ladder, get a little house in the suburbs with a garden, everything will be fine. You know, we'll have these nice children and they can live this nice conventional life. Um, and then in my teens, I got just a guitar. completely <laughs> rejected all that. Got a guitar. Because, you know, the flip side of that is it's, it's unreal. It's, too, it's trying to create a life that's too perfect, that leaves too much out. It doesn't offer any choices. It's very insular as well. The, you know, the trouble with this suburban village I grew up in was it was incredibly self-sufficient. It had everything you needed. It had a lovely little village green surrounded by shops. It had um, a primary school and a secondary school, a church, a garage, a doctor's, a dentist. You know, you never need to leave. <laughs> I mean, that either strikes you as idyllic or slightly horrifying. Um, and as a teenager, it struck me as slightly horrifying. I, yeah. I wanted to see the world. And to me, the outside world seemed interesting and exciting, and I wanted to engage with it. And the message I was being given was, um, you know, it's, it's dangerous and scary out there. Keep well back. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, the, the teenage version of my relationship with my parents was me entirely rejecting them. But then I do write a lot in the book from the point of view of the person I am now, a parent, you know, the same age as my parents were when they were parenting teenage me. And I have, you know, obviously a very different perspective, a lot more understanding in some ways. Also an awareness that it, it made me determined to be a different kind of parent. I mean, like a lot of parents, I think my own parenting has been informed by not wanting to do it the way my own parents did. There's one interesting passage in the book when you talk about kind of going back and getting off the train and wandering around and just you suddenly realise that all those, all those shops you listed, they've changed, they've become like nail boutiques. So like, yes. it's, it's been updated, but it's still suburbia. It's still, it's still it's somewhere, somewhere that's trying to be perfect. Yeah, I mean, it was incredibly the same. I hadn't been back in 20 years. And, you know, I walked down from the station and almost fainted at how <laughs> unchanged it was. Um, it was as though, you know, sort of 30 years into my teenage years had just been like the turning of one page of a book and here you are it's all the same mm. sounds like crumbling to me <laughs> <laughs> little bit Look, you know the number of people who've said to me oh wow you've summed up exactly where i grew up even though they grew up somewhere geographically very different in many ways but actually that experience of growing up in a in a small self-enclosed place which has a set of very codified rules that you're being expected to live by well look a lot of us can understand that yeah. so again it's that thing about being writing very specifically and actually a lot of people connect with it and say well i can see my teenage self in that as well mm. when you were putting constellations together Sinead, did you did you realize that like i mean i suppose you realized long ago but did you realize when you were writing and putting yourself into the book that your teenage life was probably a lot different than your standard kind of suburban teenager growing up in the early 80s yeah, and when I did go back and write that essay, I actually found it quite sad because I realised that I did miss out on a lot of things and I'm quite an upbeat 
person. And part of that is a lifetime of illness will do that to you. But I do realize that, you know, yeah, I did miss out on a lot of the discos. And again, I say in the book, like I, first year, second year, third year, fifth year, missed three months of school all the time because I was in hospital having surgeries and all the rest. And it's pretty first year, everyone formed their friendships. And then you come back, you're catching up on the schoolwork. You're trying to catch up on the friendships and then try and insinuate yourself into these little kind of... Um, groups and tribes that already exist. So yeah, I did. And even then, I, and I excluded myself sometimes out of being self-conscious or I was on crutches an awful lot. And being immobile, it wasn't easy to kind of rock up the stuff. Um, I mean, I feel so different about it now. I mean, I've, I literally, I had so much, so many years of being self-conscious that continued until my 20s that I, I'm annoyed at myself now because I don't care. But I, I did a lot then, and that is, you know, it's part of being a teenager. Everything is, it's, it's a terrible time to be self-conscious anyway, but when you've got this added stuff of everybody, you know, people would hear me coming before they saw me. So you automatically had attention drawn to you, which was just what you don't want when you're 14. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I did feel that. So I felt a kind of sadness for that, for that girl, in a way. Um, and the book ends with my, my own daughter, whose life will be, I hope, very different to mine, and hopefully, you know, never touched by anything medical or horrifying, but... You know, I, I just think maybe the same with your children. There's a different kind of confidence a around mm. now that wasn't there. And then Ireland was a different place then too. Mm. You, you were saying down below, to face you, when we were talking about that, that, like, you know, that you, you find sometimes when you, when you talk to your kids that they, they have a nostalgia or they have a jealousy about those experiences that you, you can kind of relate to. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting now being parents of, you know, the young generation now. My, my youngest is 18 and then I've got two girls who are 21 now. So, you know, they've grown up the, the biggest... Uh, generation gap thing between me and them has been the internet. Um, they've grown up with that throughout their teenage years. Just this access to the world at large. Um, that sense of isolation that I was talking about um, is unimaginable to them. They can't imagine not being able to, you know, just literally connect with the whole world, the world of information, entertainment, communication. It's just there. And ironically, they are sometimes nostalgic for some of the sort of limitations that we had to live with. Um, you know, the, the sort of preciousness of a record that you had to order from a record shop and wait two weeks for it to arrive and then go and collect, you know, on 12-inch vinyl. Um, our youngest especially, who's very into music and... Um, very into actual physical records. He, he's quite jealous of that. He says, oh, I wish I'd been around then when, you know, everything was records and, you know, and you just think, oh, it's mad, isn't it? You know, and the, the whole sort of vinyl revival, I think, has come out of that feeling from yeah. people that, you know, the saturation of product, everything being yeah. available, actually overwhelms people a little bit. And yeah. there's a sort of harking back to days when you had fewer but more precious tangible objects. I think that as well, if I'd all that time I spent in hospital, if I'd been endlessly scrolling through Twitter or faffing around on the internet, I wouldn't have read all the books that I read. Because I, 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 mean, I, I was always a massive reader. I, I read at like triathlon level at that point because I was bored. And books are, as we all know, the ultimate escapism. You climb into a world that's far away from your own experience, whether that's someone's actual experience or a geographic place or whatever it is. And that's what transported me from all those hospital beds I was in. And I've always been a reader and then turned my hobby into my job in a way. So I wonder, have there been internet and faffing around online? Would I have read all those books? Would I have been so invested in literature? Would I have ended up doing what I'm doing? Maybe not. 
Maybe, maybe it's the case as well, like just taking Tracy's line about the fact that we live in this age where everything is saturated, super accelerated, always on, always available. That that's why people are flocking to books like Another Planet, Constellations, and the other essays. Because, I mean, you're giving it, it's, it's a real life perspective. I mean, like, you know, you're, you're, it's almost as if you, you're pausing the tape. You're, sorry, that's a really old analogy. You're, you're, you're kind of like, <laughs> what, granddad? Yeah, uh, hang on. Uh, I'm trying to think, what do you do on Spotify? You turn off Spotify. Turn, turn off Spotify. It's a chance, it's a chance to delve into these worlds. Yeah, no, I mean, um, the interesting thing, though, is that books haven't died. I mean, yes, you're right. We look at um, saturation of the internet and, and you sort of think, oh, gosh, if I'd had Twitter, maybe I wouldn't read books at all. But mm. on the other hand, people are still reading mm. books. Um, one of the questions I've been asked a lot talking about my book is the concept of boredom, which I talk about a lot in the book because I talked about it a lot in my diaries. There are literally pages and pages of me just writing the words, I am so bored. <laughs> Um, like a sort of mantra, like it had to be expressed. You know, it wasn't going to achieve anything by writing it down, and yet it just had to be written down. I am so bored. I want to die. I'm so bored. I want to kill someone. I'm so bored. Day after day, and lots of people have said to me, "Ah, oh, but you know, surely that was a spur to creativity." And I kind of toy with the idea of that in the book, but I'm very loath to actually pin that down too specifically and imply that it's a good thing and get very sort of backwards looking mm. about the good old days, you know, wooden yeah. toys and yeah. it was all better. We yeah. had to make our own Same entertainment. Change. You know, I do think that's a, a potentially dangerous path to go down. Um, so the notion of boredom, I think, is an interesting one. You know, I can also see how the boredom sometimes for us was very stultifying and sometimes crushed the very spirit out of us and sometimes made us reckless and careless of our own value because we were so bored we'd do anything to make something happen yeah. and we really would and sometimes stupid things and we weren't always in control or making wise choices yeah. um, so I think these are all interesting subjects to talk about but I, I hate the notion of getting this painted into too dogmatic a corner about it and saying, you know, well, the good old days when we only had four records and had to make our own trousers, you know, everything was better. Because yeah. the, by the same token, in terms of some of the writers who have been a, a huge influence on me in terms of this book, subject-wise and form-wise, and people who've been able to who write in the way that I th thought I was writing, and then, didn't, then you find these people and go, oh, God, they're doing it, so maybe it's okay to write like that. A lot of those people were found via the internet, and yeah. specifically via Twitter. I wouldn't yeah. have found them. Um, because, you know, there's wonderful books, and, we've, you know, we have the wonderful Gutter bookshop here who's so well-stocked and brilliant and tries to present different voices. But a lot of the bigger shops do not stock or contain the writers that I love and I feel is quite touchstones for some of the things I'm trying to do. So, yeah, that's why the internet's been brilliant. It, it is, that is that democratising thing that we all talk about. Mm. And I've met a lot of people who are also interested in books. I've met a lot of writers. Mm. Um, and all because of just we're all digitally connected. And maybe, I don't know, is it, is it, a, is it nostalgic? Of what would have been like growing up, feeling so close and proximate to London, not been right there? Would it have been different if there'd been little Twitter pals you could talk to? I mean, definitely. Yeah. And there is that empowering thing, I think, for young people especially, of being able to make contact online with other like-minded souls. Mm. I did feel incredibly isolated. Yeah. And whilst you can... When you tell the story in retrospect, you can make yourself sound almost heroic up there in your bedroom, battling <laughs> the forces of evil in the form of your parents. But at the time, it doesn't really feel very heroic. You really do feel despairing yeah. some of the time. It's easy to, to slightly gloss over the, how, how negatively you can end up feeling about yourself even and start thinking maybe it's me that's wrong. Yeah. I really did feel some of the time that I was... Especially I felt I was a failed girl... 
because that was the message I got from my parents. I wasn't behaving in a way that was feminine. You know, this was going to cause trouble in my life. These clothes you're wearing are dreadful. You know, swearing is dreadful. This behavior is dreadful. Your boyfriend's dreadful. Um, again, you know, you can paint that as a kind of heroic rebellion, but at the time it's quite depressing to be given those messages. And I do think maybe going online and, you know, hooking up with some support group of people who had equally dreadful boyfriends um, <laughs> would probably have actually been fun. Yeah. But also, I mean, the, the other thing we have these days is because the internet is now on, we need to get away from it in some ways. And like, you know, you, I remember years ago you talked to me about this concept of goof-off time. You know, time where you just kind of like go away and just goof off. You don't, you, it's like, it's not being bored. It's just like, I mean, turn off, switch off, and time just to kind of think. Have you kind of found you, 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 you've got rid of that now because I mean, you've got no time to do that? I haven't had any long... Those times were tiny slivers between two enormous dark enormities of doing everything else. Um, yeah, there hasn't been a lot of time, but also you, you have to make the time if you want to write. And I talked about it for a lot longer than actually doing it and was sick of myself and just thought it's either, it's either do it now or don't do it at all. Um, and part of it is confidence. A lot of it is time. I've always worked for myself. Even when I was doing the book show, I wasn't a, an employee. Um, and it was just a question of trying you know, to find that, eke out those moments. But what worked for me is I went away to on a writing retreat. And again, sometimes you physically have to get away from your own life, uh, whether that's collecting people from school or getting away from work where your work computer is and um, allowing yourself. And the word permission gets used an awful lot, but that was really important for me. So the first time I ever did that, which was for four nights, and I wrote an unbelievable amount um, and it was, the, it was the cut off, the act, lit, lit immersion, being able to stay in it and not having to go and do something every two hours or check email or whatever. And you get a lot done in those small bursts. And because my, my life is quite time poor, I find I've learned to train myself to write in very distinct sort of bursts. Um, and I just, it, they'd be invaluable but without it. And I haven't been writing, I'm supposed to be writing a novel. I haven't been doing it this year because I've, I've been teaching a lot, which I've loved. Um, I'm doing a lot of stuff for this book, which has also been brilliant, and having lots of conversations with, with brilliant people. Um, but I need to, it's the bunker, it's kind of need to lock myself, or fake my own death, maybe. Uh, one of them. So, yeah. <laughs> so um, one, one of them is going to happen. But I will, I'll be back to it over the summer, and I'm really excited, because it's a different thing. And I tried writing fiction and non-fiction at the same time, and it's really hard hard to do. Uh, I tell a lie, I wrote it, that I have a short story in the Lucy Caldwell's Faber anthology, The Being Various one, and was written around the time of a lot of campaigning for repeal. So it's a crazy, weird story about um, women start giving birth to letters of the alphabet who turn into baby Nazis. Um, and it's, it's absolutely where my brain was at at the time with trying to finish my own book and then doing this. So it's not what I expected to write. But that's the best thing about writing. You show up when you show up and you never know what's going to happen with you in the page or you in the document. And that's why it's worth trying. That's, that's quite magical, I think. Mm. What's, your, what's your writing routine like, Tracy? Um, uh, sporadic is the honest truth. I mean, like you, I think, you know, it comes in bursts. The only thing that's changed in recent years has been taking on writing the column for the New Statesman, which I've been doing for five years now. And I said yes to that, partly because I thought it would give me a sort of discipline to have to write something. You know, I have to deliver a piece every two weeks. They offered it weekly and I said, no, that's terrifying. And asked if it could be fortnightly, so I can do that. But it does mean... Every two weeks I have to write something and I have to let it go, um, which I think is very good discipline as a writer, actually having to sign off on it and say, look, you know, you can't every time think this is literally the best thing I've ever written. This paragraph here is fucking amazing. People are going to go off their minds for it. You know, you just have to let this one go and hope that it's good enough. Um, and I, I think that's 
that's almost a better discipline than the having to put words on paper. They're having to let them go and, and go out there. Um, so that's forced me to, to keep writing regularly. Mm. And I do think it's been good for me. I think it's, it's, it's made me a better writer and it's made me just a bit more confident about the notion of, of writing, putting stuff out there, standing by it. Um, at first, I was, a very, I was a very tentative writer when I wrote Beds at Disco Queen. Um, I mean, I wrote it and it sat in a box under my bed for about five years before I showed it to anyone. And then when I did show it to an agent, she said, it's really, really good. You should just take out the word perhaps, which appears in every sentence. <laughs> um, which was very true. And I looked back and went, oh my God, it's true. I was literally hedging every single bet. Did, did, did you find the fact that like, I mean, you, you had been expressing yourself in songs for, for like, I mean, 20, 30 years, was that a help or a hindrance? Um, I mean, they're just so different. I, I, people do ask that, you know, what's the connection between the two? There, there obviously is a connection. They both involve writing words. Um, but there's something about the brevity and conciseness of songs that I'd got so used to that as soon as I wrote anything as long as two paragraphs, I just felt I was going on. You know, my God, yeah. stop now. Enough. Yeah. Um, I couldn't, at first, get used to the concept of people not being bored at, at the end of a page because in song terms, you know, so many words. So many words. I'm a bit of a natural minimalist anyway. My songs aren't particularly wordy. You know, I'm not Bob Dylan. You're not going to get 20 verses. Yeah. Um, it's don't bore us, get to the chorus with me. So <laughs> um, to write a book was honestly all about forcing me to write more. Mostly what I end up being asked for is, could you just elaborate a little bit? Because <laughs> really, what I, I, do, I do write more, but I cross it all out. I'm, the, my favourite bit is editing which means just crossing out all the bad stuff you've written. And given that as a writer, you, most of what you write you think is bad stuff, mm. you end up crossing a lot of it out. Mm. So they're, they're very different disciplines, and yeah, they require you to get into a slightly different headspace. Mm. Sinead, for, for, for as long as I've known you over the last couple of years, we've had these discussions about like, journalism, and both of us kind of like, say things but I'm not going to repeat here in front, in, in front of an audience <laughs> what we said. Do you miss journalism at all? I mean, I know it taught you certain things. There's, you did an interview with the examiner and you talked about, like, I mean, the things that it taught you in terms of discipline and what Tracy talks there about letting things go, you know? Yeah. But, like, there's a lot of, like, I mean, obviously there's an awful lot of elements of journalism that, like, you can actually bitch about as well. But do you miss it? I, I still do the odd book review because I like doing book reviews because they're also a piece of writing in and of themselves. And I tend to kind of, uh, you know, pick things that I think are my area or things I'm going to connect with or have a lot of things to say about. Um, I don't miss it because I, d I made a decision when I was in the, the middle of the book. Very, I didn't realise I was writing a book until I'd published a couple of essays and then I got on a shortlist for an, a, an agency who are now my agency, uh, my uh, agent Peter. Um, I got to the last day of this, co this competition and everybody got, got taken on and then he said, you know, and he was brilliant because he said I'd published three or four essays, not all of them were in this book and he left me alone to go off and write it and it was around that time that I said to myself, I don't have much time. I'm terrible at finding headspace, um, and I, I need to save my words for this book. So I had to make a decision, which was like, I can't do journalism, and I can't do this book. I'm not saying I wouldn't do journalism again, but I think particularly with writing non-fiction, I think it's, there's something else required of you. It's, it's full-on imagination when it's fiction. You can say whatever you like. This is, requires research, fact-checking. If you're writing about other people, there's an element of duty of care, I think, as well. So it does take longer. Now, also, you can go off and sneak off and work on another essay when we hit the wall with one of them, which happened frequently. 
but yeah, I, cu I couldn't do the two at the same time. And I, also, I felt like I was kind of draining the words away um, for journalism, because for me, journalism was never a, a hack thing. It wasn't something I bashed out. I, t I took a lot of time, I hope, and care with the pieces I wrote and agreed to do things I wanted to do and talk to writers and people I wanted to talk to um, who I thought would be interesting to talk to. But it was very, yeah, I, I think I said in that piece that I talked to two people a week apart, one who'd, who said to me, both writers who said, being a journalist is the worst thing you can ever be for being a writer. And then I talked to somebody else who said, no, 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 that's nonsense. It's great for deadlines, discipline, editing, all that stuff. And I kind of agree with the, the latter. Um, but yeah, I, I loved it. And again, like you got to interview and talk to a lot of people over the years. I loved my time doing it, but um, I, I don't think I could fit it in at the moment. And I think I'd be, I'd be further away from finishing that novel if I started writing more journalism again. But I loved it for years. I loved it. I'm curious about both of your both of you perspectives of on the publishing industry. Given that you've both kind of like mean spend your time in industries which are sort of like I suppose in the doldrums a little bit right now, the music industry in your case, Tracy, and, and journalism mostly in media. You know, what, what has been the weirdest thing you've come across regarding the publishing industry? Like, in, and like you know, obviously you're kind of thinking, how can I answer that question without kind of libeling anyone or slandering anyone? But like, I'm just I'm just kind of, I'm just kind of curious as, as as people who've been through the mill with other the other in, other industries, and you suddenly kind of like in a situation now where you're publishing books. You're talking to publishers, talking to agents. You know, there's there's probably different versions going on. There might be kind of like mean film releases, film adoption, adaptations being talked about. You're doing events like this. What's what's been the weirdest kind of thing? What what have you noticed most about the book industry? Is the book industry in in, in turmoil? Is it in crisis? Or is it a way of making a living? <laughs> you go first. Easy question. Um, Very straightforward question. I, I, I think I publishing's in quite rude health. Actually. It seems healthy to me, but I was about yeah. to say that, and then I thought maybe I'm wrong, and it just seems like that to me because yeah. it's all. Oh, going you mean journalism right and music are not in good health? Okay, um, publishing yeah, so, yeah. seems in, in a good place. I think it seems so to me. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, we were talking earlier about the the growing popularity of the literary festival. Yeah. Every town now has its literary festival. People's appetite for books, as we were saying, hasn't vanished. Their appetite for hearing people yeah. do spoken word events is quite um, healthy. I mean, for me, it's been interesting moving from the music business to publishing. Publishing, you know, it does seem... I might be still naive about it, but it does seem a nicer, gentler industry than the music business. I mean, it, how could it not be, quite frankly? Um, and I, I, I sometimes... Um, um, you know, it does make me laugh sometimes when people in publishing will say, you know, oh, you're going on tour, you know. Is it, is it a bit like being on tour? And I'm like, it is so not like being on tour. <laughs> I can't really even begin to tell you how much it's not like being on tour. Um, and it is, it is a different world. Lots more women, for a start. Um, I spent years working in the music business, which back then, I'm a bit out of touch now, so I don't know if it's still true, it probably is, was almost entirely dominated by men. And it meant I spent my working life working with men, um, musicians, road crew, journalists, um, record company executives, um, an incredibly male world. And as we know, the publishing industry is much more female. Um, you know, the, the editors and people I've worked with just on a day-to-day -day basis of, you know, getting your work done and just interacting with women a lot more. So that's very different. Um, the thing I'm still surprised at, I guess, um, and it kind of connects to the anthologies that I've edited, uh, the two all-female ones anyway, is still the ongoing issue around getting men to read books by women. And I, you know, I stress not all men, obviously. Uh, there's lots of wonderful men have talked to me and written to me about this book uh, and the anthologies. But 
I will encounter men in Irish publishing and men <coughs> who are Irish writers who are not, I know they're not reading other women, or they're reading the same uh, approved handful uh, of women and are not reading, uh, they're not reading genre, they're not reading YA, they're not reading crime, they're reading a very specific type of writing, which seems to me like lunacy, because you only learn about writing by reading outside of your comforts. Yes, it's good to read the stuff that you aspire to be and that you like, but you, you have to read omnivorously and broadly. And if you're not reading people of colour, or you're not reading trans writers, or you're not reading women, or you're not reading working class writers, I don't really know if, I, if you are an aspiring writer that I'd want to read your book necessarily. And I, Tram Press have said this, that they ask people when they uh, submit their, you can send in submissions, and um, they're very encouraging. They still get the dear sirs over, they're clearly two women, very feminist, very overt about that, but they ask people for a list of 50 books, and they'll frequently get people who'll send in their manuscript in the hope of being published by two women with 50 men on that list. And that, to me, is just staggering that still goes on. So I'm kind of ongoingly amazed by that, which just means to me that you're going to miss out on loads of great writing and great books if you don't diversify your reading habits and look at your bookshelves and see what the problem with them is. So that's my thing. I did, a, I did a literary event somewhere, and at the end of it, the um, woman from the bookshop said to me, oh, it was so nice to see so many men in. And I thought, wow, okay, so I hadn't appreciated for a start that that was a thing, that at literary events you would get a very... I'm, I'm not looking at it. I thought probably who I've brought in is men from music. Mm. So here's an irony here, <laughs> you know. I'm complaining all the time about how... Men have taken over music, you know, and so, you know, there's still this sense that in both worlds, <laughs> they both need to be opened up. And, you know, this idea of people shutting doors, yeah. as you say, men sort of not being interested in reading books by women unless, oh, she happens to be a woman who made music. So yeah. that's, is that different? I don't know. You know, now we're back to narrowness, aren't we? People yeah. shutting off their options. Everything yeah. I railed against as a teenager and still do. I still don't understand really why people don't just want to be curious about yeah. the world yeah. and encounter stuff by people different to them. Yeah. How can you want your life to be so boring that you only yeah. want to be see yourself reflected back at you? You know, it's it's that sort of setting True. limits. That's frustrating. In both La worlds. Right. Last question for me before I get some more questions from the men and women in the audience. Um, <laughs> last question. I mean, uh, like, I, I don't know. Have you, have you, have your kids read the book? And what have you, what have you kid, what, like, I mean, Tracy, in your case, what, what have your kids met of your kind, like, you, your, your oh. sort of, like, your teenage years? And like, when, when Maeve and Earl like, gets to read the book, what do they make of it? I mean, they, they haven't said much. I know both my girls have read it and both said, yeah, it's great. That's about as far as kids ever go with mm. commenting on what mm. you've... My son is not a great reader. Um, he read the opening few pages and said, Mum, you're a very good writer. <laughs> Which I it. thought, thanks, I guess. <laughs> Can't manage to get past page four, but that's OK. Um, you know, they don't really... I don't know, yours might be different. They yeah. don't really comment in terms of what they think about the content. I'm, I'm not really sure what it's like for them reading very personal stuff. Probably a bit weird. You know, I, I don't think... I'm not sure how much they ever really want to think about you as a young person as well. I mean, there's yeah. that sense that, you know, they've only known me since I was 35 plus <laughs> um, when they appeared. So the thought of me actually being 15 is probably unimaginable, really. Mine are a good bit younger than Tracy, yes. so obviously, you know, big essay on blood and surgery is not the kind of thing you <laughs> yeah. show about them. Yeah. But uh, they, they kind of know what it, a little bit what it's about, and they'll have to be a bit older. But they're really proud, like they brought it into school and showed everybody, oh, and cool. they were kind of delighted about it. And my 
uh, husband is a composer and sound engineer, and we've co collaborated on a couple of pieces from this. We're doing an event in the Hugh Lane next week, and they love the idea that the two of us are, are working together, that that's their parents are doing this kind of thing, and this is what we do, this is our job. Um, and that sort of, I think, it intrigues them, even if they don't understand it, but they know that this is work. And, and I like the idea of them knowing that you can, that your parents can work, and it can be art, it can be writing, it can be music. Um, Steve also recorded the audiobook, and you know, he features in this book, including in a, a story about, uh, an essay about how we met, which was very difficult, and was really difficult to read, and I'm glad it was him recording it, and not some strange um, bearded man I didn't know, um, because it was difficult. And some of this, I mean, parts of this book I would never be able to read in public. Um, but they ask, they've asked a lot of questions about it. And also, it's again, I'm, you're battling constantly with screens and kids. So again, I'm trying to keep the conversation about the importance of books and stories. And there's how, how many different ways you can tell stories, essays, and novels, and poems, and short stories, and picture books, and graphic novels. So again, it's just talking to them about that, I think. Mm, cool. OK, great. Uh, well, thank you very much for your time. Big round of applause, please. Trace Torn, Jay Deason. Oh, so the lights are up now. We can get a good look at you. Um, do the man count. Yep, 50-50. <laughs> More women than men. So we, if anyone has any questions for Sinead or Tracy, just put your hand up and we'll get a microphone to you. So the microphone's over here. So just get your hand up and I'll, I'll keep an eye out for the hands. There must they, be some questions. They don't have to stand at the podium, do they? Hmm? No, 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 no. no. Just, there's a, is some hands going up here? No questions. Wow. This is what oh, there is, yeah. There's a woman here in the second row. Whenever you're doing these events, if no one's got their hands up, always say the words, wow, no questions whatsoever, oh. automatically. Hello. Hi. Um, really enjoy that. Thanks so much. Um, just on that theme of, um, I suppose, reading back on your own very personal memoirs and, and, and that material, how difficult was it for you to sort of... Uh, go into areas and then think back, oh my God, my children are going to read this one day, or maybe I can't say this because it might impact on my family. Or did you feel you, you had to give yourself permission to be as honest as you could be? And, and just to hear a bit more about that sort of decision-making of, oh, that's too close, or that I will go there. I mean, in terms of my kids, it's easy for me because they're old enough. I didn't have to worry. The, the big thing for me was really to do with my parents, um, and both my parents had died before I wrote this book. And I do write about that towards the end. I write about both their deaths and um, about the fact that I couldn't have written this if they were still alive. Um, there is, I don't know, as a writer, there is something inhibiting, I think, about having judgmental parents over your shoulder still. And for me, you know, they were a, a big presence in my life and... Um, a judgmental one a lot of the time, and especially during this period that I was writing about. You know, it would have been very difficult for me to write this book, which is very honest about my feelings about the life they tried to create for me. You know, that's quite difficult. I think it would have looked ungrateful. It would have felt to me like I was presenting them with a book, you know, wrapped up in a ribbon. Here's my ingratitude. Happy Christmas. Um, so... Yeah, it, I do think this is a classic book that a writer writes after their parents die. And I've read, I've seen other writers say that, that along with the terrible loss of your parents, there is a liberating sense of there no longer, no longer being that slightly judgmental presence in your life, that person who you're trying to please, and yet you know you never really will quite please because you've gone off the rails a bit. Um, so, yeah, for me, that was the biggest family factor. Hmm. Again, mine are younger, and some of the people I do write about who, in the book, are old, dead, but 
uh, including like my grandmother, godmother, and great grandmother. But I wanted, and their lives were very, very tough lives, very working class lives. Uh, my grandmother and great grandmother grew up in tenements in Dublin. Um, all of them, like all the women in my family, until me, left school at 14. And I kind of wanted to write about and acknowledge that their lives were important and big in terms of the impact they had on me, even if on paper they look like so-called small lives, whatever that is. Um, and I kind of wanted to give voice to women who didn't have a voice in a way. In terms of writing about, there is that, I, I, I often teach workshops and essays and I say to people, you're, you're, everyone's entitled to tell their story, their, uh, their version of the story. Um, you don't have to publish it. Um, you don't have to put it out there, but if you are, it's that, you know, who's that famous writer line about a, a writer should have a sliver of ice in the heart, yes. um, that you have to absolutely, if, <clears throat> if it's not going to be authentic and it's not going to be real and you're going to lie or embellish or, or withhold, it's, it's, you're always going to know that it's not the most authentic and proper and full piece of writing that it could have been. That's how I felt, and if I felt there were parts where I was going to run away and that our mutual friend, piece, this, the piece was in The Guardian, about my husband and Rob, uh, I'm very close to his family still, and his sister particularly, and let them all see it in advance, and wondered what would I have done if they said we don't like this or we're going to change that. And I would have felt a real conflict, but they didn't. Mm -hmm. They just went, it's very hard to read, but it also brings our son back to life mm -hmm. in a way that no one, all these people who never knew him are going to know him now, and that touches us greatly. So it's a kind of, it's a tricky, bumpy terrain to, to navigate. And I, I do feel if someone had been very hurt or offended, what would I have done? Because you're allowed as a writer to say what you want, but you do have to be respectful of other people's feelings. And that's the kind of conjugation that you have to, to... But I always think aim for... Throw everything in and then you can decide what you want to remove. I almost think the more difficult question is knowing what you yourself are going to be comfortable yeah, with living sure. with afterwards. Yeah. And, you know, that's not always obvious yeah, when not. you're in the process of writing. No. I mean, I do know another writer who I've spoken to who has written a very honest memoir who does regret parts of it, who's... You know, we've had chats about it and there is that sense that it's perhaps not even until a book's out there that you can quite know what it's going to feel like knowing that that stuff's now out there. I had a version of that when I wrote Betsy Disco Queen, which was the first thing I wrote. And I realised I was telling the story of, you know, this band I'd been in all these years. And no one had ever, up until then, collated all that information. And I felt, in a way, I was writing the official version of events. And once it was out there, I could never take it back. Yeah. You know, there are, there are things in there that I've... I was quite honest about. I, I was quite honest about moments when, you know, I really felt we weren't doing our best work and I was quite self-critical and slagged off records that people would then write to me going, I really like that record. <laughs> yeah, I know, but this is just my version. But I did have a moment on the day of publication of thinking, you know, once this is out there, I can't unsay any of yeah. this. It is out there now. That's my version. The, the first essay in the book, the, uh, which is published by Granta, The Blue Hills and Chalkbones, I have a friend who has this, not the same, but hip problem, who said to me, she was, oh God, I read it. And she said, Jesus, it's so private and you're so public. And then I went, oh Jesus Christ, what have I done? <laughs> and I, I literally had a moment of going, I didn't think that it was very public. And then I went, oh no, I've just literally like, you know, slit my guts and spill them all over the dock but it, it but it didn't feel like that in a way yeah. it was just some people feel they can say things and other people can't and yet the, the kind of the whole gamut of people I get who respond to that essay respond to different things it's about pilgrimages it's about losing your faith it's about limps it's about crutches it's about surgery it's about missing school it's about there's all these different people it's from, I've heard from lots of very religious people about it about my irreligiosity but and I'd like those conversations you know but you never know what people are going to respond yeah. to in your work you just don't but Thank you very much. Yeah. Next question. 
Yep, uh, gentleman over here. We get a microphone to you. Second rope. Thank you. Thanks very much. It's been it was really entertaining listening to you. Is there an album or a book that you go back to over and over again? Uh, to, to, to trace the ancient uh, What, just in, of someone else's, just in general? Yeah, yes, yeah, oh, just God. something that you keep returning to or something oh, that's... I hate these kind of questions. <laughs> when people ask me these questions, every album ever made goes out of my mind. Yeah. <laughs> I can't even think of an album at the moment. <laughs> one I go back to I will say one thing about the, about, about the book. I, I was looking through it kind of, and uh, some of the songs you were highlighting, some of the songs, some of the 12 inches you were buying, you know, it was a pretty good collection. I mean, if I was put together a tape collection or even a Spotify playlist... There is a Spotify Playlist. There, there is a Spotify yeah. playlist. Yeah. So, like, I'm, I'm trying to give you, kind of give you some rope here now to pull yourself out of the hole. I still can't think of anything. I, I don't like Bowie. Tell me Bowie. Yeah, but I mean, it could be. There's millions. I, that's the problem. You know, there's millions, aren't there? I don't like just picking one record. Or book. Or book. That's even worse. Than <laughs> I'm not you really a reader, one. which is the thing. I'm not a reader because I always think there's oh, millions really? of books I want to okay, look so, so many new things. On. Yeah, I tend to. I do. I mean, there's some things like you know, The Dead by James Joyce. I'll read that every coming up to January sixth every year because it's brilliant. My youngest's just been doing that for um, his A levels. Super. Absolutely fallen in love with that. Oh, it's, it's so cool. It's yeah. so great when you talk about you know young people liking books. When they get into something like that, you're like, wow. They do, and it's then brilliant. you can talk to them about it. Um, album? I don't know. Album. God. Think of an album, oh. someone. Uh, I just I, name one. I and we'll really, vote. really wanted yes to go back no. to. I really wanted to go back to. Uh, I went back to Victoria Land by the Cocteau Twins, oh. which I absolutely love, and I love the Cocteau okay. Twins. And um, and then I was thinking because we had a conversation before about you singing Massive Attack and Liz Fraser singing Massive Attack, and yes. yeah. So I do. I think that's really timeless and ethereal and strange and beautiful music. So maybe the Cocteau Twins. It'll change if you ask me in an hour. I know that's the problem. Uh, next question. Very quiet from back here. Okay, that's it. Okay, well, listen. Oh, hang oh, on. Yep, it's all. How are you doing? Uh, great, uh, get the microphone to you up on the um, one, two, third floor, third floor, third, third tier there. Very short. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hi. Um. Hi, James. Hi. <laughs> one of my students. My teacher. Uh, what she like as a teacher? Sorry? What she like as a teacher? Really good. <laughs> Wrong <It's> answer. Terrible. <laughs> Go on, James. I mean, of course I would say that. But um, actually, Tracy, you mentioned editing earlier. So I was wondering for the both of you, what is your process of editing nonfiction as opposed to writing it? Like after you've kind of gotten everything down on the page, like what is the process of saying, well, now I need to make this into something for someone else to read? Yeah, I mean, I... I tend to, when I'm writing non-fiction, when I'm writing columns, I just think, okay, what, what's the information I'm trying to convey here? And just literally write it down in really ugly prose. This is the, you know, this is the story I'm telling. These are the facts I'm trying to convey. Just splurge, splurge. Um, and then shut my laptop. Just walk away from it, because it'll be horrible. Um, and then come back to it and sort of go, oh, brr. Um, and then, it, it, to me, then it just feels like chiselling. You know, you literally get your chisel out and go, okay, there's three nice Absolutely. words in there. There's one little phrase that kind of sums up what you mean. And I find that part really fun, um, just, you know, shaping it into a nice sentence, um, spotting the one line that even while you were just writing rubbish, there was actually, you hit upon a phrase that really conveyed what you were trying to say, yeah. and that shines out at you, and um, yeah, just 
that's how I do it. And lots of crossing out. I'm constantly making everything shorter. I think I, I probably err on the side of over-editing. I, I still think I have to learn lessons about um, allowing, believing that people will have patience to read things and that you don't have to be quite that brief. But, yeah. <laughs> I think I, I think I have a bad writing process in that I with nonfiction anyway, where I write and I stop and I edit and I write and I stop and I edit because I kind of need to feel my way along. Whereas some people think you should throw the whole first right. draft down. Yes. But often, I often, particularly with essays, where you're trying to make a, a an argument, uh, you're arguing with yourself or you're trying to figure out how you feel about a subject. Sometimes you have to write your way in, and what you think you know or are going to say about that subject turns out to be something very different. So you have to kind of burrow your way in. So I stop and start. And one of the times I mentioned that I went to Anna McCarrick, there was a, a brilliant uh, poet and short story writer called Mary Dorsey was there, and I told her about this. This is how I write it. She's like, "Oh my dear, that's absolutely horrifying. You should." Um, <laughs> and she so she left me a collection. She was leaving early the next morning. She left a collection of her poems. Uh, also. A, a, brilliant uh, writer of LGBT fiction, uh, left her book outside my room which said, write with the handbrake off, which I really liked, and, and which I'm not good at doing. But I can do that with fiction. I can, I can sweep along with fiction, but with non-fiction, I stop and start. And I do tend to throw everything in and then stand back and look at it in pages and take pieces out. But it is also multiple, multiple drafts. It's never, I'm, I'm not a fast writer. It's not a couple of drafts for me. And I think I, nothing should be a couple of drafts. It only can only get better and better. We were just talking, literally in there, deciding on the readings. Going, yeah. can you have you got we're a pen? We're still editing while we were reading. We were leaving bits out and going. The, I'm it's not the, uh, the Zadie Smith yeah. line: the best time to edit your book is ten minutes before you, you go on stage and read it in public. Um, and that's what it is. You're literally going. I could get rid of that. I could lose that. It's never a finished kind of object. But somebody has to put a cover and a spine at some point. So, yeah, lo lots of drafting, lots of editing. But I throw the kitchen sink in, and then I, it's literally plucking things out. But I agree with what you say, that sometimes when you write something, you actually learn what it is you think yeah. as you've written it. I think that's really true. And I think that's true with songs as well, actually. Yeah. I, I've written songs where literally one line comes into your head and you don't know where that's come from, so that's your starting point. And then three more flow on from that, and you look at it and go, I didn't sit down and think, I'm now going to write a song that says this, and yet these words have come out, and therefore yeah. that clearly is a thought I've had. Um, and that's, I think what is so interesting about it, that it is a process of discovery as much as it's a process of, you know, trying to communicate stuff and, and tell people stuff. Every time you write something, you're, you're learning something. You're finding out something about what you think and the way you think. And, you know, that's never not going to be interesting, I think. Yeah. Uh, I think I have one last question. Yeah, uh, just a second row here. We get the microphone to you. I suppose it's another one for Tracy really, but do you ever get mixed up between your worlds of writing your books and writing your music or sort of something that comes out when you're trying to write your, your biography and you think, oh, that, that could be a song? Well, not particularly, but I do think I write like someone who probably writes songs. I think I, there's a cadence to things I write. There's a way of finishing lines. I do write lines that I can see are quite songy. Um, I think there's a way I hear things and things fall and you know, sometimes I will write things in my column or something, people will say, oh, that would make a, a line for a song. And I'm like, yeah, I can sort of see how. And that's probably just through years of having done it that way. And again, I think that's where the whole editing, pruning thing comes from. You know, my eye is always drawn to trying to say something in a nutshell, yeah. which is what great songwriting can so often be about. You know, the couplet that is, just strikes you with 
a hammer blow or, you know, a bell ringing with its perfection of, you know, expressing a thought in a lovely rhyming couplet or something. I mean, is there anything more pleasing? It's the sort of the pleasure that that kind of writing can bring. You can't always do it, obviously. That would be too neat and too perfect and too exquisite. You can't always have your writing aiming to be that exquisite. But, mm. you know, there's a sort of striving towards that. And when you sometimes get it, it's very pleasing. Mm. I mean, you can do it down on Twitter, can't you? <laughs> it's a great tweet. It's a yeah. great, there's, a great, there's a great tweet that Tracy has at the moment. Oh, the, what my... The, the, the bee, bee, bee one. tweet. Yeah. <laughs> so bee my tweet most one. popular tweet ever this week... We're now on about 45,000 likes. was a tweet about bees. <laughs> I'm not going to say it, because I can't even remember what I said. It was a joke, <laughs> literally, throughout that. As it started going mad, and literally watching the retweets and everything stack up, I said to Ben, I'm so glad it wasn't something awful. <laughs> I mean, because you never know. Yeah. You know, the one that goes viral and suddenly goes mad, it could easily be something careless, you said. I'm pretty careful on Twitter. Um, but that moment when it gets out of your control and you realise it's now being... You know, it got retweeted at one point by the new scientist who I went and had a look at and they had 4.3 million followers. And I thought, OK, that's quite a lot of followers. <laughs> well, listen, I really appreciate both of you coming along and spending your Sunday afternoon. really appreciate the audience coming along as well. Both Sinead and Tracy will be signing copies of the book in the Gutter Bookshop across the road afterwards. But right now, please give them a round of applause. Big thank you. Thank you. Tracy, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.